so this uh, morning, I want to thank you all first off so much for being here. Uh, my name is Pastor Juan. Uh, I will be preaching today, and I have the privilege of preaching today at Providence Road Church. And we will be continuing our study out of the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, so you can start turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 28. We'll be reading the entire chapter today. If you don't have a Bible, we have a connection corner in the back where it says welcome or bienvenidos, as Alejandro mentioned earlier. There are Bibles there, both in English and in Spanish. If you need translation as well for Spanish, we do have translation devices in the back as well. So just keep that in mind. Now, with that, we're going to turn to our passage, and we're going to read at a 1 Samuel chapter 28 this morning. The word of the Lord says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments, and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. 
Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for this morning, for just a beautiful privilege and opportunity that we have to be here, to be able to open your word today. Father, help us to block out all distractions and focus in this moment, focus on the message before us, focus on what it is that you ultimately want us to learn and to understand from this passage. Father, we pray for those that are here this morning that do not know your son Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Father, we pray that your truth would convict their hearts today and you would open their eyes to their desperate need of a Savior. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Hope. Hope is such a simple four-letter word, but a word that carries with it such great anticipation. The idea of looking forward to something, in eager anticipation for something. In fact, the dictionary definition for hopeful is optimism about a future event. As we think about that definition, right, as we kind of reflect on that definition, optimism about a future event, I think many of us can relate, and we can think back to a specific time in our own lives where we were very excited and optimistic about something that was to come. I think of an engaged couple the night before their wedding, right? They're enthusiastic about starting their new life together. What about a husband and wife who just found out that they're expecting their first child? Ball of nerves, but excited and looking forward to it. For all of those students and teachers in the room, a student or teacher during the last week of school, you know that vacation is right around the corner. Freedom is right around the corner. All of those things come to mind when we think about looking forward to something future. But one thing that comes to mind for me is children on Christmas Eve. There is this enthusiasm and excitement about what is coming on Christmas morning, right, and the gifts that they get to open. That's one of the rare nights that kids are actually okay with going to sleep, right? They're not going to fight you tooth and nail to go to sleep that night. There's actually an eagerness to being able to go to sleep because they know what's coming on Christmas morning. And so I can actually think back for myself to a specific Christmas Eve, a Christmas Eve that my parents said, you know what, you can go underneath the tree and you can pick out one gift and you get to have that gift right by your side. You get to go to sleep with that gift right next to you. Me, very, very excited, enthusiastic, can't wait to grab that gift. And as a seven-year-old boy in the 90s, uh, I was a big Power Rangers fan, right? So at that, at that time, I can't tell you what Power Ranger I got. Might have been the Red Ranger. I was a, kind of a big Jason fan, right? Uh, it might have actually been even the Command Center, Zordon's Command Center, right? I'm like geeking out big time here. But Zordon's Command Center, right? I can't tell you which gift it was. Right? But what I can tell you is that I knew the feeling. Right? I knew that hopeful anticipation that I felt that evening to say that I could open that gift on Christmas morning. And I assume for many of you, you right now, maybe you have a specific memory in mind for yourself as I'm describing this. But at the same time, as we talk about hope, as we talk about being hopeful, I want you to also consider the very opposite reality, being hopeless. The definition for hopeless is feeling or causing despair about something. One of the first things that comes to mind for me, as a big sports fan, you, many of you know, is those moments in sports 
when you know it's all over for your favorite team. Case in point, Game 7, 2022 Eastern Conference Finals, Miami Heat, Boston Celtics. This might bring up a lot of painful memories. It just happened about a month ago. We have the Heat fresh off a gutsy Game 6 victory in Boston. Jimmy Butler, uh, tour de force, what a, what a game, right? We, in Boston, we have a chance coming back, Game 7 in Miami, to go to the NBA Finals to face potentially the Warriors. And after being down for much of the fourth quarter, we cut the deficit to two points with 20 seconds remaining. And our best player, Jimmy Butler, has the ball in his hands. He races up the floor. The crowd is going wild. Everyone is on their feet. Whether you're in the arena or you're at home, you're on your feet and you're excited. And Jimmy pulls up for a three-pointer to give us the lead. And he misses. Jimmy misses. The shot was right on, but just short. Just short. And the Heat lose. How many of you Heat fans felt despair when Jimmy Butler missed that three-point shot in game seven? Talk about devastation. Now, some of you may be saying, okay, you're kind of exaggerative at this point, right? Exaggerating a little, and you're probably right. If many of you are like my wife, you're going to say, it's just a game, get over it, not a big deal, right? But that was painful, right? As a, as a sports fan, that was very, very painful. You can ask my wife, I didn't sleep well that night. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. I take these things to heart, I wear them. And at that point, after he missed that shot, you knew that there was no hope for the heat. Their season was over and nothing could be done about it. That situation was hopeless. Now there are si more serious situations in our lives, right? I jest and I joke. There's more serious situations in our lives that can cause us despair. And there are other words to describe being hopeless, such as being dejected or desperate. So with that in mind, how about the rest of you? Can you think back to a time where you were hopeless or desperate and you responded accordingly? For some of you, that may be with your finances. You felt like you were up to your eyeballs in debt, right? Your expenses kept rising and you had no idea what you were going to do next. You felt like you didn't know what to do. Maybe you jumped into some sort of a get-rich-quick scheme that ultimately left you losing more money than what you had in, from the beginning. For others, maybe you felt that way about a specific relationship. You felt hopeless, whether that was with a friend, a parent, a sibling, a child, a coworker. Like there was no hope and nothing was going to change. Nothing about that situation was going to change. You had no optimism that things would get better. Maybe that's your marriage at this very moment. You feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You've considered just throwing in the towel, giving it up, and walking away. For as real and as exhilarating church as it feels to be hopeful, it can be just as devastating and debilitating to feel hopeless. And I think we can all relate in different ways to those feelings of being hopeful and hopeless. But church, in those particular moments of our greatest despair and anguish, in those moments of hopelessness, we prove ourselves to be weak, desperate, and foolish people. We rely on our own strength instead of on the strength of the Lord. We look for our own answers instead of seeking wisdom that comes from above. We will see that in the life of Saul today. A helpless man who was separated from God, and had no hope. So my main idea for today's message, I want you all to take note of it. Without Christ, our lives are hopeless. I'll say that again. 
without Christ, our lives are hopeless. I have four ideas from this morning's text that will point us to what a hopeless life apart from the Lord looks like and how we can respond in light of those realities. But before we dive into those four points, let's take a moment to set the scene, context, what exactly is going on here in the passage. So last, uh, last week, sorry, Pastor Jesse sked, um, preached on 1 Samuel chapter 27. In that passage, we saw that David decides to flee to the Philistines. Why does he decide to flee to the Philistines? Because he understands, if I don't get away, if I don't go to the Philistines, Saul is going to kill me. And one day, Saul is ultimately going to kill me. So he is fleeing, and he gets away from the Philistines. And at this point, he goes and he flees to Gath. And he sees the, the king there, Achish of Gath. Now, if you'll remember, back in 1 Samuel actually 21, he fled to Gath as well. And he was there with Achish, uh, but ultimately he fled from him after that as well. So as a result of him deciding, dis, um, deciding that he's going to flee to Gath, Saul ultimately stops pursuing him. And we see that again in chapter 27. But David ultimately finds favor in the sight of Achish, the king of Gath. And Achish gives David and his men the city or the town of Ziklag. Now, David was very deceptive in what he shared with Achish. And Jesse had shared that last week about his raids and his conquests in the surrounding areas. So Achish is here thinking that David is someone to be trusted, is ultimately someone who has become such a stench to his former people, the people of Israel. He's become such a stench that, hey, I can trust him. Me being on the side of the Philistines, I can trust him. But obviously that was not the case. But nevertheless, we see the extent that David, or sorry, that Achish, he trusts David in the sense that he makes David his bodyguard, his bodyguard for life, as we'll see that at the beginning of chapter 28. This role was very significant. The term bodyguard literally means the keeper of my head. So Achish was prepared to take David into battle with him. And that's ultimately where we find ourselves in this morning's passage, right on the precipice of a major battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And that is where we find Saul. But verse 3 really sets the stage for the remaining action in this passage, as you'll see there in verse 3. Verse 3, we're reminded that Samuel died in Ramah. You can actually see that in chapter 25, verse 1. It mentions the same thing. But we're also told that Saul had removed all the mediums and necromancers out of the land. Mediums and necromancers were people who communicated with the spirits of the dead. So again, we have that context, that understanding. He has removed them that is going to inform the rest of our passage, the rest of our study, is that he has removed them. So it gives us relevant information as we understand the rest of this chapter. And what we'll see in this chapter is the hopelessness of Saul on full display. The hopelessness of a man who is separated from the Lord. Again, today's main idea is without Christ, our lives are hopeless. And you may be asking yourself, how is it that we see that in the life of Saul? Well, I'm glad that you asked. So... Point number one, apart from Christ, we respond in fear. After verse three sets the foundation for the rest of this chapter, we see actually in verse four that Saul, that the Israelites have gathered their forces at Gilboa, while the Philistines set themselves up in Shunem. As Saul saw the Philistines, he was afraid, and it says that his heart trembled greatly. It trembled within him, right? He was terrified of the Philistine army and the upcoming battle. This fear ultimately led him to consult this medium because he wanted to know what is it that I need to do next? Where is it that I go from here? 
And ultimately, the Spirit of the Lord had already departed from him. So he was not hearing from the Lord when it came to those things. But again, this is not the only time that Saul has responded in fear. We say that, we look at this and we think, okay, well, he responded in fear because it's, it's an army, it's a battle that's to come. But that's not the case. We see that throughout 1 Samuel. So you'll see it in actually 1 Samuel chapter 17 that he's fearful of Goliath as well. He's so fearful of Goliath that he's even willing to give away his daughter to whoever it is that's going to defeat Goliath because it sure as heck was not going to be Saul. In chapter 18, Saul is also afraid of David because he knows that the Lord is with David and the Lord is no longer with him. Saul himself even acknowledges and recognizes in chapter 15 that when he disobeyed God's command to eliminate Amalek, the people of Amalek, he says that he feared the people and he obeyed their voice instead of listening to the voice of the Lord. We consistently see this theme of fear in Saul's life. However, the sad reality, church, is that this can also be said of some of us here today. How many of us are constantly ruled by fear in our own lives? We're so fearful of our future, of what's going to happen at our jobs, what's going to happen with our relationships, our marriages. Will our children be okay? Will I have enough money? We get consumed by these things, and we act as if we don't have the Spirit of God living inside of us. We act as if God never made promises to us in his word that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. We act as if his word does not direct us to not worry or be anxious about anything and to not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has sufficient troubles of its own. We act as if that is not true. We look at Saul and we think, why does he respond in fear? What a foolish man. But guess what? We are children of God and new creations in Christ with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, yet we still respond in fear in similar ways like Saul. Let us not be blinded to that reality. We're not be- we, we think, oh, we're, we're that much better than Saul. We respond in similar ways as Saul. Let us not be blinded to that reality, to the reality that we are fearful people that need to be reminded that our God sits on the throne in power and glory. This world and our own sinfulness will drive us to fear, to worry, to anxiety. We can so easily get carried away by our emotions, by our thoughts, our feelings. And sometimes we get to the point of even having a panic attack, just thinking about everything that's going on in our lives. We get overwhelmed in those ways. Brothers and sisters, in those moments, let's take some deep breaths, right? And let's renew our mind with God's hope. And find peace in the fact that there is confidence and hope in him and him alone. I charge you today, in the midst of your fears and your anxieties, rest in the Lord. Rest in the never-failing promises found in his word. I got choked up the the last song, Only There, right? Uh, Danny does such a good job of of selecting songs. Uh, Because I'm reading through, or I'm listening through the lyrics. It says, I find my rest in thee. Church, that we would find our rest in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But church, we're so prone to not turn to the Lord in fearful, anxious situations, even though his word tells us that we can find peace in him. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise we have right there in those verses. John MacArthur, when he's speaking about these verses, he said, Delighting in the Lord and meditating on his word are a great antidote to anxiety. I'm going to say that again. Delighting in the Lord and meditating on his word are a great antidote to anxiety. But as I said before, our tendency is not to turn to the Lord in those moments. Just recently, and full, full, full transparency, I was at work one day in the middle of different deadlines, important meetings, along with some of my own personal stressors. And I remember telling my wife how stressed I was. Now, what I didn't tell my wife, because I didn't want to worry her or get her uh, nervous, is that I was to the point also that I felt just a tightness in my chest as well, just from everything that was going on. In that moment, I wasn't turning first to the Lord or to his word. But I'm so thankful to the Lord for my wife, uh, who pointed me straight to Psalm 23. And I was able to breathe and meditate on the truths that are found in his word in that passage. I was able to ask the Lord that he would calm my heart, he would calm my soul in that very, very moment. So again, so thankful for that. But someone to remind me and point me to the direction to say, I need to go to the Lord, I need to go to his word before I do any of these other things. You may be facing very bleak circumstances yourself. Circumstances that are out of your control and that drives you crazy, right? We're people that love control. We love to be able to control things. But in addition, you may be facing circumstances that cause you great fear and great anxiety. Rather than spinning your wheels and worrying over something you cannot change, be comforted by the words in Isaiah 41.10, in which God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Christian, I tell you today that we do not need to live in fear. We live in fear and we're ruled by fear. The reality is that we are ruled by fear because we have a greater view of the things of this world, the things around us, than we do have a view of our sovereign God, the God who is unchanging and perfect in all of his ways. He has never changed. Our circumstances change, but he remains the same. Church, that when we understand that, let us remember that the same God who put the stars in the sky, knows you by name, is acquainted with your pain, your grief, your struggles, and stands with you steadfast throughout it all. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So that is the God that you can rest in this morning. That is the God that we have peace, that we have hope in. So while we're tempted to respond in fear, as Saul also responded in fear, and we see that throughout, let us stand in confident assurance that the Lord will sustain us throughout whatever comes our way. So again, church, point number one, apart from Christ, we respond in fear. Point number two, Apart from Christ, we do foolish things. Church, let's be real. Where do I begin when it comes to the foolish things that uh, Saul did in this passage, right? The, the list can go on and on, so I'll try to be brief. We've already seen that Saul, in his fear of the Philistines, he asked his servants to find a medium for him. So he says, I'm going to go find a medium because I need to speak to Samuel. 
So we understand that that is where it begins. And that's really where his foolishness and his desperation start in this passage. Verse 3 highlighted the fact that Saul had removed the mediums and necromancers out of the land. He had already taken them out. And that was actually in keeping with the law. You can actually see that in Deuteronomy 18, verse 11, also Leviticus 19, 31, that the people of Israel were not to associate or turn to these types of people, to mediums or necromancers. So again, Saul, faithful to the law, does that, and he removes them out of the land. In fact, the law even goes further to say in Leviticus 20, verse 6, that if someone pursues a medium or a necromancer, God will turn his face against that person and cut that person off from among the people. So Saul, at this point, is operating in direct defiance to the law that he was obeying before and that he instituted before. So he was following it, and then now he's operating in direct defiance against it by pursuing this medium. So talk about being foolish and desperate right there on, on display. But it continues from here. Right? His servants let him know that there is a medium. Hey, there is a medium, but it's an Endor. So we have to go travel all the way to Endor and to visit him. So Saul decides to go visit that Endor, uh, that, sorry, that medium in disguise at night. So they go in disguise. They put on their clothes the day before a major battle, this battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And on top of that, he will need to pass by enemy territory in uh, Shunem, to get to Endor. So to get to Endor, he's going to have to pass by Shunem, again, passing through enemy territory at this point. So really, he's putting his life at risk to go consult this medium. And even adding to the foolishness, church, the journey from Gilboa to Endor, it's not right around the corner. We're talking six miles in one direction. So let's paint this picture. And in addition to that, he hasn't eaten anything all day and night. Right? I don't know how about any of you guys, like a lot of travel on no food whatsoever, probably not going to be good. Right? So he is making a six-mile journey on an empty stomach, passing by enemy territory the night before the biggest battle of his life. I think we can all agree that this isn't the wisest of choices that Saul is taking at this moment. But one thing that sticks out to me in particular is that he was making a six-mile journey on an empty stomach. I've made a similar decision in my past. Back in 2013, I ran the Miami Half Marathon. So don't clap for me or anything like that. It was not impressive. I didn't do a great job. So just leave it, I'll leave it at that. So, but the Miami Half Marathon is 13 miles. Uh, and guess what? I did so having only eaten an apple in the morning before the race. For any of you that know anything about running or even just general nutrition, you probably know that I made a big mistake at that point. I get to the very, very end of the race. By the time my family finds me, my family and my wife, I was pale. And many of them are here today. They can, they can attest to this. I was pale. I looked like death. I couldn't even move. I had no energy in me whatsoever because I had no nutrients in me, right? That's a very smart thing that you would think that somebody did. I did not do that. I was literally laying on the grass at one point just looking around and hoping that somebody would find me. My family was calling me, and I'm like, I just see tents around. I can't tell you anything else, but please find me. By the grace of the Lord, they found me, and I, I got the, the nutrients that I needed eventually. Clearly, I made a foolish decision, and Saul made a similar decision. But going back to our story, we see that Saul asks the medium to bring up a spirit for him, and the woman responds by asking him, why is he trying to lay a trap for her? for her life. Essentially, she's saying, why are you trying to kill me? 
She's asking him this because according to the law, in Leviticus 20, 27, continuing off of uh, in verse six, uh, 20 in verse 6, whoever was a medium was actually supposed to be put to death, and in particular, they were to be stoned. So she's aware of this. But Saul tries to assure her that everything will be okay when he says, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Imagine how blind and foolish Saul is, that he is vowing and swearing to the woman that he's asking to do this, the woman whose profession you should be stoned for, he's saying, everything's going to be fine, and don't worry about it. And he's, he's vowing to her and swearing to her by the same God that he is operating in active disobedience against. Again, foolish. He is desperate, he's foolish, he's blind. In all these instances, as we look at it, our temptation as we read these verses is to say, Saul's such a mess. Look at how he responds in these situations. If it were me, I would never, never do that. But you have to ask yourself the question, are there areas in your life where you have responded foolishly and acted in direct opposition to the Lord? It may not be like, it may not look like consulting a medium, right? I think we can all agree, many of us are not going and asking somebody to read tarot cards or something along those lines, right? But it may be in different ways. Some of you, it may be trying to date an unbeliever and ignoring the fact that his word says that we're not to be unequally yoked. For others, it may be the thought that you do not need to attend church on Sundays and that you can do church from home or that you don't need biblical community. You know, I, I don't need brothers and sisters around me that keep me account accountable. I really, I really don't think that that's necessary. Hebrews 10.25 is pretty clear that we're not to neglect meeting together. So if you think that you can do church and this Christian life on your own, I'd ask you to meditate on that verse. Think through and try to identify, is there any sin in your heart? Are there any blind spots in your life that are ultimately keeping you from obeying the Lord's command? At the center of our foolishness, church, there's a disobedient heart to the instructions from the Lord. Church family, may we be people who are committed to obeying the Lord and his commands, even when it directly conflicts with our desires, with what we desire to do. Our desires can be misguided, and our hearts are desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that. For that reason, we need to rely on the wisdom that comes from above. We have that wisdom found in the word of God. May we be people that are enamored with his word, so that even though our hearts may be tempted towards foolishness, we can respond with wisdom and in obedience, knowing what God has called us to do. So church, as we said, point number one, apart from Christ, we respond with fear. Apart from Christ, point number two, we do foolish things. Point number three, the consequence of our sin is an inescapable death. At this point in the passage, Saul has now asked the medium to summon Samuel from the dead to answer his question. As the woman saw Samuel, she was terrified. She screamed loudly, and then she confronted Saul about it and said, You're Saul. Why is it that you were deceiving me? Ironically enough, Saul then tells her, and this is hilarious, Saul then tells her to not be afraid. This is coming from the same man who's been gripped by fear throughout this entire book. 
right? This is the equivalent of the pot calling the kettle black, right? He is telling her to not be afraid, and he's been gripped by fear. This is like LeBron James telling somebody else, hey, you shouldn't really complain about foul calls. Really? Really? Kevin Durant saying, hey, you should be loyal to, like, one team. Okay, all right, sure. We're supposed to listen to this person, right? I'm supposed to listen and not be afraid because you tell me to not be afraid. But nevertheless, she proceeds to describe to him how Samuel looks. Now on this topic, scholars have debated for some time whether it was that they actually saw, that the medium actually saw Samuel, or if it was a demon that was posing as Samuel, or if it was a deceptive act by the medium, a deceptive act to be able to fool Saul. Most scholars would say, though, that the fact that the medium was terrified and caught off guard by what it is that she saw, and the fact that the spirit of Samuel accurately described what took place in Saul's past, as well as accurately predicting what would take place in Saul's future, ultimately his death, that in this case it was God who was the one who miraculously permitted the actual spirit of Samuel to speak and deliver his final message of judgment against Saul. On this topic, I believe this is one of those passages in Scripture that's more descriptive rather than prescriptive, meaning that the passage is really just describing what God ultimately permitted, that he miraculously permitted, not advocating for us consulting mediums, right? Because we already see in Leviticus 20 and verse 6 that that act, consulting a medium, is something that is punishable as, um, by death, ultimately the Lord cutting, cutting this person off from the other people. So now going back to the passage, in Samuel's words to Saul, he's very direct in letting Saul know that all of this is taking place and all of this has come about because he was not obedient to the Lord back in 1 Samuel 15 when God had called him to destroy all of Amalek. Samuel delivers the news to Saul that on the very next day in the upcoming battle that has been tormenting him, right? Saul has been tormented, distressed over this battle. Samuel gives him the worst news to hear. That in that battle, you, along with your sons, you will die. And the nation that you're leading, the nation of Israel, will be conquered by the Philistines. Those foes that you are terrified of, they will kill you and they will take your people as well. In God's perfect sovereignty, he used the spirit of Samuel to convey his authoritative message to Saul. Saul was thinking that through the medium, he thinks, I'm going to go consult this medium. I'm going to talk to Samuel. I'm going to know what it is. Okay. Uh, I'm going to know what it is that I need to do for this next battle. And ultimately, I'm going to be able to save my kingship. I'm going to be able to save my own life. But ultimately, he could not escape the judgment of God. This passage is a reminder to us all that we may think that we can run from God, but we certainly cannot hide from him. David says in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. We cannot escape from the Lord, and we cannot escape from the consequences of our sins. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Because of our sins, we are deserving of death. Nothing that we can do can change that reality. Not our good works, not our financial success, not our professional success. Absolutely nothing that comes from us can change the fact that our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has created a grand canyon-sized chasm between us and God. 
and only God could bridge that gap. Only through a work of the Lord could that broken relationship between God and man be restored. And we see that work of the Lord in the remainder of Romans 6, 23. As the verse continues to say, so we know that it begins, for the wages of sin is death, but it continues to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This verse is the perfect picture of both the bad news and the good news of the gospel. The bad news is that we are deserving of death. But the good news, the good news is this, that we have eternal life in Jesus. For believers here today, those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we can praise God for the gift of eternal life that we have through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. However, for those of you that are here today that do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your sins have separated you from the holy God of the universe. There is nothing that can change that. If you were to die today, the Bible says that you would go to hell and that you would spend eternity in separation from God. That is the scariest reality of your life. Scarier than suffering a painful physical death here that reality is far worse. But there's hope for you today. The Lord may be calling you to him today. And if you want to know more about Jesus and ultimately how to know him as your Lord and as your Savior, please come see me, see any one of the other pastors here today. We would love to have that conversation with you. But as we keep in mind, as we think through this, as we look at the rest of the passage, no matter how Saul tried to get wisdom and direction for the days ahead, he could not avoid, ultimately, the judgment of the Lord against him, against a man in direct defiance against his law. Nothing he did was going to change the fact that his disobedience led to his death. Nothing that we can do can change that reality either. For believers here today, may these truths compel us toward humility and thankfulness for the Lord who has intervened in our lives to save us. And for unbelievers here today, may you be convicted of your sin and recognize that you are hopeless to save yourselves outside of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So church, we've gone over point number one. Apart from Christ, we respond in fear. Point number two, apart from Christ, we do foolish things. Point number three, the consequence of our sin is an inescapable death. Lastly, point number four, the things of this world cannot satisfy and calm our souls as the Lord can. As we come to the end of our passage, we see that Saul is now in utter despair. He's just received the news that he and his sons are going to die the very next day in battle. So at this point, he is left, it has left him full length on the ground, completely hopeless, filled with fear, and with no strength in him at all. Remember, he hasn't eaten anything all day and all night, and he's completely exhausted from a six-mile journey. Again, just picture me laying in the grass, helpless, and just looking up for somebody, right? That is a picture that we have for Saul right now. He's absolutely horrified by the news, and he's overwhelmed with mental distress. At this point, He's essentially paralyzed. He doesn't want to move. He doesn't want to go anywhere. doesn't want to do anything. 
Now the medium comes up to him and tries to encourage him that he needs to get some food in his system. You need to get nutrients so you can get going, right? So you can move on and go, go on your way. So she offers to prepare a meal for him. I can see how the medium is really trying to get him to leave. I need to get this guy out of my house. I need to get him out of here. It could be an uncomfortable situation for her. She has the king of Israel in her space after performing an illegal request for him that ultimately could get her stoned. This same king who now is in her space, who also promised her that nothing was going to happen because of what it is that she did, is on the floor in complete, complete agony and devastation over what he just received. So I can see where she wants to get him fed and get him on his way, get him back to Gilboa. She may be thinking in, his he- in, in her head, you don't have to go home, but you just got to get out of here. You can't stay here. So after further persuasion by the medium and ultimately the servants, Saul decides to eat and he leaves that night. And while the medium met a very real physical need for Saul in that moment with his lack of nourishment, that meal would not change the outcome of the next day's battle. That meal would not change the reality that Saul's life was coming to an end. He was returning that night to his camp to await his doom the very, very next day. He was still returning to his camp a dejected and helpless man. So while that meal satisfied his physical hunger, even for a moment, it did nothing to resolve his dead spiritual condition. He was separated from the Lord and destined for destruction. The title, the fame, the wealth, and the prestige that all came with being king of Israel meant nothing if he was dead on the inside and rebellious against the Lord. Church, I say all of this because we are often deluded into thinking that the things of this world will satisfy the aches and pains of our hearts. As if a meal to fill our stomachs will address the greater hunger in our souls. However, those temptations, those vices, those false gods that we worship, that we idolize, that we turn to for sustenance, they will only ever leave us feeling empty and hopeless. Christian, you may be finding yourself here today and you've lost sight of your first love. You have lost sight of your love for the Lord and you've sought fulfillment, happiness, and peace in the attractions of this world. Remember today that those attractions, those false gods, whatever they may be, will never, will never provide the true satisfaction that is only found in the Lord. When it comes to this topic, I always turn to Jeremiah chapter 2 to remind myself of the foolishness of seeking after the idols of this world. In Jeremiah 2, verses 11 through 13, the Lord says, But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Church, think about that imagery. Cisterns are pools or containers that are intended to hold and store water for either a a family or even an entire village, an entire community. So we have the fountain of living waters before us in the Lord, but we have forsaken him in order to create our own cisterns. Our own cisterns, but they're broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. And as a result, what happens? We, our families, our community will be left feeling thirsty 
because we have forsaken our God. In similar fashion, the gods of this world that we serve will always leave us feeling empty and hopeless. But we can find all that we need, church, in our God, who is the giver of life. He is the fountain of living waters. In closing today, while we recognize that apart from the Lord, we are hopeless, we can be reminded that with Christ we have an everlasting hope. While we may respond in fear or do foolish things, let us direct our eyes to the God that we serve. Let us look to his word and respond in obedience rather than foolishness and desperation. And when we are tempted to redirect our attention away from him and our affections to the false idols of this world, let us thirst for the fountain of living waters, the only one who can satisfy us. In him, we find all that we need.